Okay, thank you all for coming. Tonight we're in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, where we read, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Here's the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for a record of your creation. We thank you that you have... Uh, even condescended, Lord, to speak to us in a way that we can understand. So I pray that as we search your word tonight, Lord, um, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would work by your spirit in our hearts, in our minds, Lord, give us eyes to see your truth, uh, and help us, Lord, not just to uh, know it, Lord, but to apply it to our lives, Lord. Let your truth take root in our hearts and change us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. John Calvin wrote in the 16th century of all the skepticism he had to defend the Bible against when it came to the creation account. Because he believed and he taught that the Bible says that God created all things in six literal days. And he faced a consistent outcry against that because it was believed by many that six days made absolutely no sense because God was so powerful that he could have done it in an instant. 500 years ago, People pushed back on a six-day creation because it seemed way too long. My, how things have changed. Tonight, we're going to discuss how to understand these days of creation as we consider God's work on the second day and part of the third day. And we're going to see that what God does in this period is set the boundaries of heaven and earth before he begins to fill them with life. So let's remember where we left off last week. God, on the first day, created the heavens and the earth as one place. Originally, the heavens and the earth were this spherical mass of water that was covered in darkness. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And this light was a gracious, invisible representation of his glory. And God pronounced it good that his glory, and therefore he himself, was present with his creation. Then we saw God created a partial separation between the light and the darkness, between his presence and his creation. There was still overlap between the two, but now there was a place of light that was his presence, and a place of darkness, everything else in creation outside of his presence. And we were told that there was evening and there was morning, and that was the first day. Now, we see God's second divine fiat. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God places a separator between some of the waters of the watery mass of the earth. Let's review how the ancient Israelites understood the creation. Here we see the finished creation as they believe it to be. There is the spherical mass of water with the glory of God up in the third heaven above it. In the mass of water, God creates a canopy or a firmament or an expanse, depending on your translation, that literally separates the waters below it from the waters above or on it so that he can create land and fill it with creatures. So step one was the watery mass, and this is step two. God makes the dome in the waters he inserts a semi-spherical canopy in the sphere of waters that he began creation with. And now there is water in the dome and water outside the dome. 
The waters are now separated from each other. But it isn't just the dome that God makes. He makes the space between the surface of the water under the dome and the dome. This is what we would probably read and think, oh, this is talking about the atmosphere. He makes it so there is space, so there's air in the dome that he creates. And this is in preparation for the dry land, the birds, the plants, the animals, and the humans that God is going to put in this open space that he created. So included in this idea of the expanse is actually all the space above the waters under the dome and under the waters outside the dome. And we know this because of how the word for expanse is used in the Old Testament. The word that is translated here, expanse or firmament, it's a word used only 17 times in the Bible. Five times here in these three verses to describe the second day. It's used three times to describe where the heavenly bodies are placed by God on the fourth day. And it's used once to describe where the birds fly on the fifth day. So the expanse isn't just the dome, but the space between the waters created by the dome. But this expanse is a further separation between the third heaven and earth. God does a lot of separating and, and setting boundaries in the first three days of creation. We saw him separate his light from the darkness of the creation on day one. We're going to see him separate the dry land from the water under the expanse on day three. Here, he creates not just a separation of the waters, but a further separation of earth and the third heaven where he dwells. Now, this helps us understand the passages where we read of this expanse outside of Genesis. We read about it, for example, in the vision of Ezekiel. But it's also going to help us, as we'll see, to understand that the light God created on day one is a visible representation of his glory, which represents his presence. So the word for expanse is used nine times in Genesis 1, as we just saw. It's used five times in the book of Ezekiel. Four times in Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel describes that vision of what is explicitly said to be God's glory. Part of that vision of the four living creatures Ezekiel sees. Now I'm going to give us just some highlights of Ezekiel's vision here. He says, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north. Now this is, remember what we talked about, this is cosmic north. This is the third heaven above the expanse. This stormy wind comes out of the north. This stormy wind is the same word that's translated whirlwind when we read of Elijah being taken up to heaven. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this is their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had a face of an ox on the left side, and the four had a face of an eagle. Now these faces represent Christ. It represents him as a human. It represents him as a king or the lion. It represents him as the servant or the ox. And it represents him as God, represented by the eagle. Ezekiel says, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse. There's our word shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse, it's the fourth time we see the word, over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And so he concludes it. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. What's going on here? Well, if you're a part of the Revelation study, we looked at this in some detail. If you weren't, you could always get the book. But for tonight, understand Ezekiel is seeing the glory and presence of God cross the expanse that separates heaven from earth. Ezekiel is seeing a vision of the glory and presence of God in Christ 
descend under the expanse. He's seeing the coming of Christ. He's seeing the coming of God the Son from heaven to earth 500 years before it happens. And when he looks above the expanse, he sees in the third heaven a human seated on the throne. He's seeing the ascended Christ. So the expanse physically now separates us from God's glory and God's presence, right? Christ is in heaven. We're here on earth. Well, later Ezekiel uses the word in another vision, Ezekiel 10, where he's brought in a vision to the temple in Jerusalem. He sees all kinds of sins taking place within the temple. And this was the place where heaven and earth met. This is why the temple, like the tabernacle before it, was decorated to mimic heaven. So read in Hebrews, we're told they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. See, the tabernacle and the temple after it were where God gave a representation of his presence to his people in the Holy of Holies. The, the tabernacle of a temple was literally heaven brought down to meet earth. And we see in the tabernacle of a temple three different stages to get to God. There's a threefold entrance to God's presence. There's the inner court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Just like God creates three heavens. Two of them separate God from man before we can get into his presence. Then, of course, you had the veil, which was the firmament or expanse between the third heaven and everything else. Behind that veil is the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's actual presence. Over it were two statues of cherubim. They were heavenly creatures whose job it was to guard the throne of God. See, this was the very point where heaven met earth, where God's presence was represented for his people. So after that first vision, Ezekiel, in another vision, sees the Holy of Holies. And he says, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance, like a throne. There's our word expanse there. Ezekiel's given a vision of the expanse and the throne of God, the literal throne of God that were represented physically by the veil and the ark and everything in the Holy of Holies. And what happens in this vision of Ezekiel? Again, I'm just going to give some highlights. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Then I looked and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of a cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chebar Canal from his first vision. Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chebar Canal. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. This is Ezekiel seeing the glory of the Lord leaving the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's presence was, the place where God had dwelt under the expanse, the Holy of Holies, was no longer the place of his presence. Heaven no longer meant earth, met earth in the temple. And this, of course, just setting us up for the coming of God's presence in the person of Christ and then in the person of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost back to Jerusalem. But here we see this expanse above which is the throne of God. This is the same vision John has in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 4. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We see this unfathomable description. I can't even figure out what he's trying to describe here. But note that a door stands open in heaven. The word here for heaven in Greek is the same word used in the, in the Greek Old Testament to describe the expanse in Genesis 1.8. Septuagint says, and God named the firmament heaven. This is that expanse between us and God that John crosses over in his vision to Revelation. So, given the description by Ezekiel, we see that that light that God separated from the darkness is in fact his glory and his direct presence. And this expanse that separates the waters from the waters further separates the third heaven from earth, God from his creation, and it's this expanse that Christ had the cross to get to us. But, even though this separation exists and God's light is obscured in this world, that doesn't mean he can't be known. Because his creation, and in particular, this separation between us and him, is said in the Bible to reveal the glory of God that it hides. Psalm 19, we read, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky, this is our word for expanse, above proclaims his handiwork. As we saw, the ancient Israelites believed that the heavenly bodies were contained underneath the firmament. They were within the expanse of heaven. This is why Daniel likens resurrected believers to the stars that are within the expanse. Daniel 12, we read, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, or expanse, above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The only other time this word expanse is used when the psalmist calls for the whole creation under heaven to praise God. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, or expanse. So this word that is used to talk about this expanse, about the separation between man and God, this expanse contains the first two heavens, which includes what we would call outer space, where the heavenly bodies are, and it speaks to our separation from God. And this is why when we read in the Bible of a time when Christ will come to judge the reprobate and complete our salvation, when he's going to come to perfect the very creation that groans in anticipation, we read in many places of these signs in the heaven of the heavenly bodies being dissolved before a new creation is made. We see it in the Old Testament, like in the book of Isaiah. Behold, the day the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Read about it in Joel. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. Who he, execute, he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is very common in imagery in the Old Testament, talking about the last day, or in that day when Christ comes. You'll find it in a number of places. And it carries over into the New Testament. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks of his second coming, and he says... Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is what John sees in his vision of the sixth seal in Revelation. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is the undoing of the creation we're reading about here in Genesis 1. This is when the physical separation is taken away finally and forever. This is when Christ returns. It will mean judgment for the lost, but for the elect, it will be when the separation is taken away and God will forever be with us and with, we will be with him in the new heavens and the new earth where his glory shines once again. But for now, there's a physical separation between us and Christ. As I said, he's in heaven, we're on earth. And these two were further separated on the second day of creation. When God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Now the word make here or made is different than the word we looked at as translated created in verse one. That word, remember, is only ever used of God. Only God can create that way. The word here for made is a word that can be translated as made or manufactured or produced or labored over. This word is used of humans throughout the Bible. It's the word used to describe the uh, Israelites having to make bricks for the Egyptians. So what it's saying is God took already existing physical material and formed all of this from that rather than creating out of nothing. Now, what is the actual dome that holds the other waters up supposed to be made from? I have no idea. It's only described here in Genesis 1 and very briefly in the visions of Ezekiel and Revelation. You know, we know that our atmosphere is made of mostly nitrogen and oxygen and it's held to the earth by gravity and that's the dome that's over the earth as we understand it. But we need to remember, Moses isn't describing the creation scientifically. Moses is describing the creation theologically. Okay, God saw that heaven and earth together as one was right and good, but then he separated them and his presence was physically represented in one location. Then he further separated heaven from earth and while his glory and his presence come to earth, men only get to see heaven in visions. Men don't go physically to heaven. In other words, God can and always could get to us through the separation, but we've never been able to get to God. Now this will be important for the original readers of Genesis. Remember where they were. They're in the middle of wandering the desert. God, the one and only God, was present only with them, with them alone. He descended from heaven on Mount Sinai. He led them as a cloud of smoke by day and as fire by night. And he and his glory would be physically represented, as we saw, in the Holy of Holies until he would remove it and he would appear as the cloud and as the fire and Israel would follow him wherever he went until God chose another physical spot to be set up for him to physically be with his people. And this is important for us because it explains why Christ had to come to us, right? He was the glory and presence of God and he became human to come to us. He is what the tabernacle and the temple pointed to ultimately. And this is why this separation is described here. God made it so man cannot get to him. Also note here that we have our and God said. At the end of this description, we're told it was so. We saw this on day one. We're being told once again that God's command for this to be was enough for it to be. That is how powerful God's word is. And then we get this detail. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Notice God calls the expanse heaven. This is what we would call the sky and outer space. God calls it heaven, even though the third heaven where he dwells was above the expanse. And as I mentioned, there aren't two different words for heaven and sky in Hebrew. They're the same word. In fact, even our word for expanse here is translated as both heaven and sky in the Bible. 
And that word we spoke about, I think on night one, that's always in the plural in Hebrew, is translated heaven and sky. There are even some, you might have a translation that translates this in Genesis as God called the expanse sky. So for the Israelites, they understood this expanse to be the sky, outer space, and that final separation between us and God. This is how far man and God were separated. And when God commands this to be, and it is, we are told, once again, there was evening and morning the second day. Now, as I said, there's no sun yet. So the idea of an evening and a morning can be a little confusing. The idea of a day might confuse us. I mean, what would be the measure of this? I don't know. But Moses isn't trying to tell us what is. In fact, that there is no solar day in existence yet, and Moses describes now for a second time that there was evening and there was morning, and that these together constitute a day, means that Moses is trying to explicitly use terms the Israelites would understand to mean one day, one 24-hour period. But even outside of this, there is plenty of reason to believe this is talking about a literal 24-hour period. This is describing a day. Now, there are people way smarter and way more sanctified than I am who would disagree with this. So let's not consider this an essential to the faith. We also need to understand that Sincere Christians who believe either option, it's not about whether or not they believe the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It's a matter of interpretation of the Bible. It's not a matter of faith. There are, of course, atheists that believe this account was meant to be a metaphorical account of what most accept modern science to have proven. The Earth is billions of years old. But if you come at this from that standpoint, and the Earth is billions of years old, then you can't only discount the evening and morning and the day wording, you have to discount the actual order of creation here. And that means if you discount the entire account as trying to even give us any kind of truth, which means you have to discount the veracity of the Bible and ultimately the fact that God even is. And that's exactly what most people that espouse this view want, is what the world has been deceived to believe. But there are Christians, believe it or not, that believe both the, the creation account in Genesis and the modern belief of evolution over billions of years are compatible, and they're both true. But to me, the, the, this days can represent billions of years idea falls apart under its own weight. I think we have to either believe the creation account is speaking of six literal days, or we have to throw out the entire creation account as communicating any literal truth. And when we do that, that leaves us open to mythologizing this account along with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is exactly what most of these Christians do. And what we need to understand what's being described in creation as according to what the ancient Israelites would have believed, their ideas of the origin of the universe, their understanding of how a natural word worked. We also need to be, understand that what is being communicated by Moses is absolutely true. So what we can see from the rest of the Bible that the light on day one is the glory of God, what we can see how the expanse refers to the separation of God and man, yet it is still 100% true that God gave the light, a physical representation of his presence, and that man and God are separated from each other except for where God chooses to reveal himself to man. As I said at the outset of his study, we have to understand Genesis by understanding Moses' intent when he wrote and how his original audience would have understood what he wrote. We need to take that and interpret that and apply that to ourselves. But the author's intent is the truth. And that means these days can't be symbolic of some longer time. Let's just think about it. Plants are made on the third day, the sun is made on the fourth day. 
If each day is millions or billions of years, then you have to posit that God supernaturally kept all the plants alive by a miraculous act since photosynthesis could not have occurred yet. But this is actually contrary to the belief of those who espouse the billions of years because they want to say God created and then used natural processes to bring everything to come to be. Adding in a billion-year miracle would be very inconsistent with that view. Second, if you believe that each day is billions of years because of the claims of modern science, then you have to switch the order around or discredit the entire account. And not just because of the plant and sun thing, but modern cosmology tells us the universe is almost 14 billion years old, but that the Earth is only four and a half billion years old. Actually, this year, a couple of months ago, some scientists, I think over in Sweden, it's always in Sweden for some reason, this scientist said that the universe must be closer to 27 billion years old. You know why? Because way too many stars are too well formed to be younger than that. Did you catch that? Scientists have figured out stars are made better than they thought, and the answer must be not a creator, but more time. Regardless, every model of the very old Earth considers the Earth much younger than the universe. But God creates the Earth on day one, and the rest of the universe on day four. And while the ancient Israelites' concept of exactly where the heavenly bodies were, or what was exactly around the earth, while that might differ from our understanding, their concept of first and fourth were exactly the same as ours. So again, seeking to interpret what the light of, first, of the first day was, or how to explain the expanse of a second day, it doesn't call into question the veracity of what Moses is communicating. It's fair to ask, what was the light if there is no sun? It's fair to ask, what is the expanse and the waters that are sitting above it? I don't think it's fair or intellectually honest to interpret the Bible according to the modern ideas of science unless you're going to do it consistently. And if you do, you have to say the entire creation count is metaphorical. But Christians that do that have a problem. Because they try, but they're really, they can't sneak in any idea that man was made as an imager of God, as a direct act of God. So that means they can't really believe Adam is a real individual. And that means they can't really believe that a fall ever occurred. And when we can't believe these things, now we have to not only reinterpret the creation account, but other portions of scripture and say, well, these must be metaphorical too. And then we run into real trouble. Like when we read in Romans 5, Paul says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Right, there's no Adam. Well, then what are you comparing Moses and sin according to the law to? If there's no Adam, then Paul is talking about a fake person that was a type of this one who is to come, and that one is Jesus. And if Jesus is like Adam, and Adam didn't really exist, where do we wind up? On top of that, if there's no fall, then there's no grace or justification. Paul goes on to say, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What does this mean if Adam didn't exist? Paul may as well have said, hey, if there's a Santa Claus, then there's a Christ, and you're good. Even if you want to, as some do, say, well, no, Paul is just using an old Jewish myth to explain Christ and his work better. Well, I would have to ask then, what was Christ's work if there is no Adam and no fall? But there's more. The seven days of creation are invoked by God himself 
as the rationale for the Sabbath day. In the fourth commandment, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or a sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And this is not the only time that God himself correlates the days of creation with the literal days of the work week. But if these days of creation aren't really days, what is God commanding here? When he refers to the six days in which he created and the seventh day on which he rested, does he mean something different by the word day than when he says to work for six days and rest for one day? I mean, it certainly seems like he's comparing these days. And while day can be used in Hebrew like in English, and we can say things like, you know, back in my day or someday and not be talking about an actual 24-hour period, how awkward would it be in English for me to talk of six days or any specific number of days and not be talking about literal days. So, when we read, and there was evening and there was morning the second day, I don't see this can mean anything other than 24-hour literal days. All right, with that out of the way, let's continue and start the third day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Now, why did I lump in just this part of the third day with the second day? Because with this now, God has finished setting the creation boundaries in preparation for life to exist on earth. He commands here the waters under the heavens, which is the name of the expanse. We just said God called the expanse heaven, right? God commands all the waters under heaven be gathered into one place. What he's doing is he's setting the seas and the dry land within their boundaries. We'll see the idea of physical boundaries plays a huge role in the history of redemption once the fall happens. And we again see this came... This came to be simply by a word from God. God said, let the seas be gathered and the dry land appear, and it was so. Now don't forget, the Israelites believed the earth was flat. So the seas now are, according to their understanding, for the most part, along the outside of this central landmass. That's why they're said to be gathered together into one place. They moved to the outside surface of the earth, and in the middle is all the land. And then we read, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. A couple things to talk about here. First, God calls the dry land earth. The word used here for earth is a very flexible word. It can be translated a bunch of different ways. It can refer to the earth, part of God's original creation, the heaven and the earth. By the time creation is completed, the earth can mean everything under the third heaven. It can mean just the dry land within the dome of the watery mass. It's translated as land, about 1,600 of the 2,500 times it's used in the Bible. When it's translated earth, as I said, it can mean the land of the whole world or that part of creation outside of heaven, but it can also be used to refer to the entirety of all the people God creates. Sometimes it's just used to distinguish land from sea. Sometimes it's translated as ground, meaning the actual physical ground we walk on or even the dust or dirt that makes up the ground. It's also translated as country or territory in the Bible. It can refer to a fixed place on earth within a specific boundary. Now, why does this matter? Well, as I said, this is going to become important as we go along in our study of Genesis. The idea of these defined territories become very important for the storyline of Genesis and beyond. Second, notice that God separates the land from the sea, and he calls it good. 
Remember, the word good means fitting or desirable. God pronounces the creation of land and its distinction from the sea as good. The last thing he pronounced good was his light of his glory on his first day. I just want to point out again, he does not call the separation of light from darkness good. He does not call the creation of the expanse that further separates him from his creation good. I also want to point out that contrary to modern Christian assumptions, God never calls any part of his creation perfect. Even when we get to the sixth day and God completes his creation and man is made, God doesn't say there it's perfect, does he? He says it's very good. In other words, the creation account throughout points us forward to the consummation of God's plan, to the consummation of God's creation. See, God's plan is perfect. The creation will be made perfect. But what that means is that God never intended the creation of Genesis to be all there is. He never intended this to be the final place of existence for man, not even Adam and Eve. So this concludes the first portion of God's creation. He makes a distinction between heaven and earth by setting it in its boundaries. He prepares the earth to be filled with life. He sets the land, the sea, and the air in their boundaries here. God will now create life to fill his creation. And we're going to see that he sets certain what we call natural laws in place, even though it's really him that sustains them all. But he puts these natural laws in place that will govern life until the old creation pass away. But before we get to the creation of life on earth, the next part of creation we're going to cover is the creation of life in heaven or the spiritual realm. Next time we're going to talk about the heavenly beings God creates. Now this isn't actually discussed in the Genesis account in the six days of creation. But it's discussed elsewhere in the Bible, and it's going to be important to understand these spiritual beings even as soon as Genesis 3.